Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Whitson. Today, I am here with my colleague, CSZ. Hi, CS. How are you? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? I am doing well. So, Today, we are going to be talking about the Liver Fellow Network with two of the founders. What is the Liver Fellow Network and why are we talking with MCS? I think Alex is very cool. Alex Vogel and Adam Winters, they're very cool. And why we're talking with them is it's really they turn this passion of theirs about liver and hepatology, liver transplant into and medical education on this into something really real. So it's almost like a two year and a half old baby. They started this at the beginning of COVID and March 2020 with just an idea like let's build a group that helps other people who are interested in liver or just curious or committed to liver to learn more about it. And now it's really grown. They got an AGA grant. They have multiple venues, a platform, website, podcast, webinars. So I think it really, it's like an entrepreneurship, I think, like a startup yeah. company, but for medical education and liver. Yeah, it, I got to tell you, it, you know, from the outside, you and I are both not liver people. I think we can say you might like a little PSC with your IV love, <laughs> but I don't know what EOE is doing with, with the, with the liver, but you know, you and I are both on Twitter. We're both following things. And this has been something that's been growing and growing. And, it's, and uh, you know, as a program director, more and more, I'm seeing my fellows engage with it. And it's it really is quite impressive. And I think one of the things I am most impressed by them, and, and to be fair and, and to be clear about this, Adam and Alex, you know, it's not just them. It was Farida. It was Lizzie. It was Hirsch. They're representing a team of five core uh, fellows who really started this. Uh, in our conversation, but the idea that they took this from theoretical to actual, I think is incredibly impressive. And I'm looking forward to hearing from them how that happened and really maybe how they could model that for other people that have these ideas running around their head and really how to bring them to fruition. Yeah, like others who might have interest in artificial intelligence, esophagus, or colon cancer, or just different venues that want to build something out of it in medical education and a network. I think they gave some great, great pearls on how to do that. So I think without any further ado, let's have Adam and Alex on. Let's do it. So while we get started, Adam, Alex, why don't you guys introduce yourselves about who you are, what you're doing now, and where you're going? So I'm Adam Winters. I'm a transplant hepatology fellow at Mount Sinai. I am one of the co-founders, along with Alex, of the Liver Fellow Network. And starting in July, I'll be transitioning to faculty at Mount Sinai as a transplant hepatologist. And I'm Alex Vogel. I'm currently a third-year GI fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and was a co-resident with Adam at the Mount Sinai Hospital and will be returning there next year to be both the transplant hepatology fellow and Adam's fellow and also co-founded the Liver Fellow Network with Adam and co-host the Liver Talks podcast as part of the Liver Fellow Network. Yes. How could I forget the podcast? Early plug. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Early, that was a real fast guy. It's a real fast. That's a that's a pro move. We weren't sure when we were going to get cut off. Yeah. So, what is the Liver Fellows Network? So, 
the Liverfellow Network was started in the summer of 2020, kind of mm-hmm. in the middle of the of the high pandemic, when a bunch of us got together and realized that there was really a need for more digestible medical education initiatives within liver diseases. You know, a lot of us were were friends or co-residents beforehand or, or had known each other from professional society meetings and things. And, and we had a kind of a central interest in trying to bring easily digestible med ed content to the liver space. And so we came up with the idea to start a website with a bunch of different core series that are in a, a number of different spaces. And so Alex and I came up with the idea to have a podcast. There's also something called Evidence Corner, which kind of distills down uh, important research topics that into an easily digestible format. And we just felt that there was a big need in this space, particularly within liver disease, which happens, you know, which is typically a smaller sort of subset of the greater GI community. Yeah, I think that Zooming back to even February or really March of 2020 when everything stopped. And I think for most fellows, the experience was that suddenly there were no conferences, there was no real teaching that was happening in sort of a formalized setting because we were used to, you know, going into a room and talking through things and suddenly everybody was home or masked and scared and not being in the same room. And at the same time, we were introduced to Zoom for the first time and started to see via Twitter and elsewhere that medical education that was done online and wasn't necessarily face-to-face could be quite effective if the content was good enough. And that led a number of us, and we were all across the country when we started at the Five Fellows Who Started It, to be able to start meeting on Zoom and sort of brainstorming what we thought would be helpful. I think the other part of it was that most of the educational materials that you could get on a national level, were either sort of board review series or things related to a conference, but weren't necessarily things created by fellows that people that were sort of in the trenches would think were most helpful because we thought it was most helpful. And so that was sort of the, the backdrop behind which we created the Liver Fellow Network. What are some of the topics you guys cover then? So we'll pretty much cover, you know, a large variety of things within liver disease we have a series called Clinical Pearls, which kind of highlights key topics within sort of clinical disease. Evidence Corner, which Alex runs, which is a distillation of high-impact papers. We have our podcast, which is similar to this in that we like to focus on career development, but also kind of an adjunct in terms of trying to dive deeper on big issues within hepatology. So really, the things that we find interesting that we think are important for trainees to know about and understand and also things that we think are important for them to use as teaching materials, perhaps to you know residents and medical students, really just highlighting bigger topics within within liver disease and, and transplant. And then the other aspect, I think initially we were pure education, sort of within the FOMED space, so the free open access medical education type space. But from that, and with the help of an AGA grant, we were able to start the workroom, which is part of the Liver Fellow Network. But there, it's really all about trying to connect fellows across the country. So it's a variety of Slack channels. And some of that is discussing clinical issues. So, you know, recently someone came on and was like, do people usually do Rifaximin, Lactulose plus Rifaximin, just Lactulose first for hepatic encephalopathy. But then we have a number of chains that are much more for lack of a better way to describe it, within the mentor space of asking career questions. So there's a whole area just for people
people that are applying for transplant hepatology fellowships to get sort of insights from people that may be at that program or may have recently interviewed. And then a separate thread that I'm now more interested in about sort of the job hunt and what contract negotiations look like, when people should be sending out cover letters, all that kind of stuff. And so it's trying to be, as a whole, the Liverfellow Network, a one-stop shop for getting a lot of high-impact educational materials, but also for people, as Adam and I say, that are either HEP curious or HEP committed, can go to learn more about sort of the next steps in their career, potentially. So HEP C, either way, depends what the C stands for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, with HEP C being eradicated, I think the new HEP C is HEP curious. That's right. Right. That's right. <laughs> So back this up for a second. So first off, should we give a shout out to your three other co-founders? We would love to. So one is Hershroff, who was a Northwestern fellow at the time that we started it. He's now a junior attending at UNC, who Adam and I went to residency with, but had all gone different ways for fellowship. The second is the all-time powerhouse uh, within fellows, and especially GI and liver Twitter, uh, Lizzie Abbey who almost needs no introduction, although I've given a long one. And then the last is Parita Patel, who was at University of Chicago as a fellow when we started this. She's now the Transplant Hepatology Fellow at Northwestern and will be moving down to Atlanta for a job in a few months. So I'm curious about one thing. So this is clearly a huge endeavor. You guys, you know, you're two years into it, give or take. So obviously things have built up, Right. Maybe not everything was done like the first week that the uh, Liverpool Network was there, but there must have been huge hurdles for the five of you to be chatting about this, saying this would be a great idea to where it is now. Can you kind of walk the audience through what did you have to do, kind of maybe some of the granular stuff and the challenges you faced early on? Because it's one thing to say, let's do this, which is definitely needed. It's filling a void that was there. And it was feeling avoided at a time that things really were needed in a different way. But to get it done is is incredible. And I really commend the five of you on that. So I'm curious kind of if you could walk us through that. A lot Thank of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> it took a lot of meetings and it took a lot of trying to establish the goals and objectives that we were setting out to do and trying to figure out exactly how we are going to deliver the content. And basically, we, we ended up dividing it up into the core series that we had talked about. We had to establish a website. Fortunately, we had a friend who was able to guide us through the process of sort of establishing a website, how to set that up, how to put graphics on the, on the site, how to uh, establish a URL. These are things that I don't think we really had a lot of experience with. And then it was a lot about establishing kind of our mission statement, and how we were going to deliver content. And there was a number of discussions for how to do that. And we eventually landed on the core series that, that you see up, up there now. One of the big things was just a commitment by all of us. I think we're all sort of on clinician educator tracks. And sometimes it's hard, both in fellowship and presumably after fellowship, to figure out sort of ways to make an impact within that outside of sort of teaching a specific lecture or what have you at, at your local institution. And so all of us wanted to put real time into this because it was very bootstrapped initially. And so there were five of us and there were initially five core series. And so each person was sort of owning one thing and then Lizzie was owning the social media on top of that. And so each of us found a great educator that we thought would be good as sort of a faculty mentor for the section that we were starting with, brainstormed sort of what that would look like, and then 
started to create content, but initially were sort of the people that were editing each other's stuff and giving each other feedback so that we had really good content. Because I think, as has been said infinite times in the internet age, it's the barriers to entry are impossibly low, but if the content's not good, it, it doesn't matter. And so we really, when we hit the ground and launched, we launched... I want to say, Adam can correct me, four or five months after we started sort of meeting so that we had a really good amount of content available that we felt really confident in. And once we launched and there was a good response, we still kept it pretty close to the vest and only started expanding to other contributors, other people running some of the sections once we felt like there was something a little more sustainable there. Alex brings up the point about the, the faculty mentors. You know, it's really important for us that every everything we put out there was verified and reviewed by someone who was in attending so that we weren't just, you know, spewing our own nonsense, but we had someone who was who was reading it, sort of fact-checking it, making sure that it was something that was both accurate and useful. And and we had a lot of buy-in from the, the faculty that we asked to be part of the initiative, which was great. That's actually what I was going to ask you about, which is how did you get that buy-in? Was it just, hey, this is a great idea. I'm on board. I'll hap- I'll happily edit. Or, or was it once one or two people saw? <laughs> I was going to say coercion, but um, <laughs> did it take like one or two people kind of signing on, vouching, and then as soon as the content hit and was you know at first glance it looked good, then all of a sudden there was a deluge of people wanting to be involved. Maybe a little bit. Of that, I think that the initial faculty mentors, and some of them have turned over since, were largely people that were from one of our institutions. So one of the advantages we had was that we had five institutions that had some amount of transplant hepatology or advanced hepatology practices there and could sort of cherry pick people that we had relationships with and trusted, but also thought would be good with this. And so that's sort of where we started. Since then, there have certainly been both faculty that have reached out and been interested in being mentors, as well as a lot of fellows that have wanted to sort of contribute content. And that's been a separate challenge. But um, I think that initially, we kept it fairly close to people we knew. And I think it's a great testament to the the hepatology community as a whole that that a lot of the faculty were, were very eager mm-hmm. and interested in, in being part of this there were some bandwagoners, but for the most part, everyone we we uh, we reached out to was pretty enthusiastic about being part of it. Yeah, and and I think we'd be remiss not to give. We've sort of said the five core fellows, but Adam Mikolajczyk is our core faculty mentor and has been, I mean, he's a master educator and also someone who really has been incredibly supportive and generous with his time in sort of helping us in the early stages and continues to meet with us way more than we would expect um, and has been very great in sort of getting this to be the quality product that it is. You guys mentioned the AGA grant and Mm -hmm. a lot of, I think people trying to start something have that chicken or egg question. Like you kind of need to start something to have pilot, to have preliminary data to kind of show like, hey, this is going to work. But at the same time, like you said, it takes a lot of your own time or money or website buying a domain. So for you guys, for this Liver Fellows Network and the podcast, when did the AGA grant come in? Pretty late. We had established the website, I'd say a little over a year by the time we had presented the project to the AGA. And so we used that grant to kind of grow and establish the workroom, but we had already built the website kind of through our own blood, sweat, and tears at that point and a little bit of money, but but not not too much. We we're pretty fortunate to take advantage of, of free hosting and didn't really have to invest a lot of our own resources in it. It's only when we kind of wanted to expand 
our focus and what we were looking for that the idea of applying for a grant came in. Shout out to the AGA educators. I'll, I'll get Cheryl File on, on yes. board with this one. Fair enough. <laughs> so I guess the other thing you mentioned a little bit of money to start, was it institutional money or receive money for, for anything or for talks? Because I feel like, like Matt said going earlier, some people, whether it's for liver or other AI, you know, or different topics that they're interested in and want to pursue, not on their own, but as a group. But it's, it's just like where to start, like who, I think we answer that question, like who your group of peers as well as mentors, but now some funding over time. You mentioned some seed money or? The seed money was, was our own, I would say. The mics that we're talking to you from were purchased ourselves, yeah. for instance. Okay. We expense them um, to our ourselves. <laughs> tax, tax deductible. Tax deductible. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we may maybe. have missed that. It depends on your account. Yeah. <laughs> if it's yourself, maybe not. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, our meetings were all free via Zoom. Uh, the initial hosting on WordPress, I think, was largely free. We were able to get a web developer, a friend of Hirsch, to really help sort of make the website what it was. And then Hirsch's wife, uh, Radhika, who's an amazing graphic designer and works at Etsy. I don't need to disclose that, but I will. Um, did all our sort of logo work and really designing everything. And so we were able to, I would say, more leverage our larger network in order to get it off the ground. And then once it was established, then we felt a little more comfortable trying to either make partnerships or apply for grants. Because I think if we had applied in spring of 2020 with with sort of an idea, I'm not sure how well received that would have been. But once we had some data about how much the Liverfell network was being used, then we could suddenly go and say, look, this is something that's really gotten adoption, but we want to take it to the next level. So I know CS was asking about the funding. It sounds like the five of you really just got creative and kind of called in some favors, you know, bought some, you know, it's, Microphones aren't that bad right now. Everyone started a podcast during the pandemic. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about the collaborations? Like, How easy was it to kind of settle down on what you're going to start with? I know you guys said you worked on it for a few months. Like, How did you guys resolve the conflict? How did you guys get to a majority decision? Because I imagine people are going to look at the five of you and say, I could do that with IBD. I could do that with esophagus. I could do that with MedEd. I could, like, great. We're in an era of creativity, I think. So how did you work as a team there? And kind of what advice could you give if someone wants to start not the same endeavor, but something in a similar vein? I think part of the reason why it worked so well, and, and this is maybe getting away from the idea of, of, of teamwork, which there was quite a bit of, is that everyone was sort of in charge of their own part of the site. And so people, you know, each of the founders had ownership over that part. And so once we agreed that, you know, what the core series was going to be and who was going to lead that, and that we had a faculty buy-in on each core series, you know, we were really able to shape it in the image that we wanted, but also felt comfortable coming back to the, the collective with the ideas that we had. And it was a really, you know, collaborative space but there really, shockingly, thinking back, there really wasn't much tension in terms of there wasn't a lot of disagreement. I think we all had a lot of faith in each other. And a lot of that, I think, is too, which may not be as um, easily sort of adapted, is that we all kind of knew each other and knew, knew, you know, had worked with each other before. So I think that we each, there was a trust there. There wasn't a lot of disagreement, but when there was, I think that we all felt, you know, our meetings were very safe places to kind of go over those and, and sort of resolve those issues. Once you survived Mount Sinai's morning report, you were you guys were okay. With <laughs> right. Once you've presented enough great cases at the Mount Sinai morning report, you're really ready for anything. The first thing I would say to your point that 
I think it is replicable. And we're actually working on something of a paper to try to at least go through the granular details as to what it took to go into this. So that should hopefully come out in the next few months. So stay tuned for that. But I would warn anybody, I think they should definitely do it, but it is a lot of time. Um, and you really need a committed team. And I think you know, what helped us succeed, one was the camaraderie we had and the fact that we sort of had a joint trust in each other that every no one was sort of freeloading just to have this on a resume or something like this. Like we all wanted to really be there and do it. Sort of a, a startup ethos. The second was there was definitely a shared vision as to what we wanted this to be. And then frankly, there was strong leadership. I think Hirsch initially and then really Hirsch and Lizzie have been sort of our editors-in-chief, for lack of a better way to describe it, and have done a great job of sort of organizing things to keep us all accountable so that we could keep pushing things forward because inevitably there are going to be some lulls and some times where content isn't naturally uh, sort of coming to mind or we're busy with clinical responsibilities. And so both that sort of feeling of accountability to a group that a small group that we liked and cared about, as well as a product that we really believed in, I think helped sort of push us. How did you guys meet again? Uh, the five of you? Is it something like DDW? You guys work together? Yeah, so three of the five of us, Hirsch, Alex, and I were in in residency together. We knew Lizzie because, you know, we all... Everybody know knows Lizzie. Lizzie. <laughs> and then Hirsch uh, knew Prita from Chicago. And so we kind of each knew that we all had kind of this shared vision or this idea and, you know, work ethic. And we it was started circulating emails between the five of us about trying to work on something like this. And it was really sort of instigated by, by Hirsch's vision. And, and we just kind of jumped on and helped build it from there. So now that it's kind of flushed out to a few different, different components, really, mm-hmm. how do you suggest fellows engage with the liver fellow network? Like what do you want your audience to be doing and how should they engage with the material? Listen to Liver Talks. Available yeah, first on and foremost, love number two. <laughs> that's right. I think that the first thing to do, I think, is just to go to liverfellow.org. That's, that's clearly the place that has everything. And so I think what we've tried to do is have different kinds of content depending on who you are. So some of the series are really the foundational pieces of hepatology. And so anecdotally, we've seen that med students as well as residents may sort of gravitate towards that kind of material. There's then more advanced things, including the Clinical Pearls and the Y series that really dive deep, but with a pretty good breath as well. That may be more for people that are, you know, on a hepatology rotation or starting to pursue a career in hepatology. And then for anybody that's a little more curious about sort of gaining a network and a community, the place to go is the workroom. And that's open to anybody that is a U.S. sort of trainee. And so I think that's a great place to go to actually make those connections because everything on liverfellow.org is somewhat passive. You're not sort of engaging with someone that's engaging back. And then the last place that I think is in many ways our busiest is via Twitter. So you can follow us there and that will sort of show you all our new content as it's coming, but is also a place where there's some more dynamic conversations. We've also started doing webinars pretty frequently. The The two that we've had so far is a primer on the new application process for Transplant Hepatology Fellowship. And then we recently did a primer a webinar on how to search for a job. So a lot of high impact webinars that we've had, we've had some really great faculty join us. And so the place to find those is, is, also, on, is also to follow our Twitter account, which is at Liverfellow. Really cool. Okay, I have two completely unrelated questions. <laughs> I'm 
was just, you guys keep mentioning like the more and more I hear, like the more venues are, it's like a web and it's grown. So how big is the liver, liver fellows? Huge. (laughs) I know there's different ways to quantify, but like, what are some numbers? Like I can't even imagine now. So, I mean, in terms of, you know, things that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, you know, I know our workroom has well over a hundred members who have joined the the Slack channel, which, which is great considering you have to fill out a survey, download Slack. And so we've had some really good buy-in from the people who, who use the website in terms of getting them to sign up for the workroom. I don't remember exactly the website traffic, but it's... We, I, I know we have, I think, on the order of thousands of unique views yeah. a month. And then on Twitter, just because I pulled it up, we have a little over 6,000 followers of our Twitter feed. And so there are a lot of different ways... And that's the liver fellow one. Adam and I each have about uh, 30 followers. but um, And less tweets. Uh, <laughs> and one of them is each other. You know, Adam and I often joke because our our podcast, and to some extent, Liver Fellow Network as a whole, isn't targeting a huge group of people because it's really trainees interested in liver disease, which, as many articles have suggested, there's a there's a massive workforce shortage of hepatologists, and so the fact that this many people are following and engaging with our content makes us both very excited, but also feel like one of the roles of Liverfellow Network may be to increase enthusiasm for training in hepatology. You know, it's very interesting that the birth of this Liverfellow Network, it was also at the birth of like the pandemic, like in the US since March. So it's easy to calculate how old it is. If COVID has been with us for two and a half years, this is two and a half years old. Maybe looking back, it's really amazing what you guys have done. I think really create a space for trainees who want to pursue liver transplant, right? Or, or hepatology. Any pitfalls or things that you think you wanted to do differently or that you want others who are on the starting journey on the beginning of that two and a half years, any advice and pearls for them? I think the first thing that came to mind for me is to really think about sustainability as it relates to the project, because I think there's there was a ton of enthusiasm up front by us, but also by the larger community. But that fizzles super, super fast. And so having sort of people that are committed to continuing to push out content, but also having a plan for how you're going to expand content contributors, how you're going to expand the network, you know, we weren't even dreaming of some of the things like the workroom or that kind of thing, but trying to come up with ways to continue to engage with people in a prospective manner instead of like, oh, traffic is totally down. We need to revamp this again. You sort of only get one shot at pulling people in and, and then it's even harder to keep them there. And so I think that, you know, Clubhouse is probably a good example that launched around or got popular around the time that we did during the pandemic and everybody was talking about it. And now I haven't heard anybody talk about it in a year. Not that we That's were as like big Clubhouse. as Clubhouse, but, um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> do you know Matt? <laughs> I do, but I can't describe it. I, <laughs> if I, if I, let's see if I get this correct and I'll put it out to the space that when I'm wrong, it was more or less a place that friends would quote unquote get together and hang out during like virtually and at some point it involved music singing and at some point dumb dances and at some point some celebrities did it and started beef and then it collapsed 
Okay, I'm now learning. I don't know what. Yeah, I'm not was. sure I know either. <laughs> I think I think uh, my larger the point record, was that we're going to say that's correct. Since yes. no, one no, one knows. <laughs> no notes. Let's move uh, on. Yeah. No notes. But but that there's a lot of buzz initially, but to have plans for sustainability, I think, is crucial initially. Totally agree with that. I think you have to be willing to adapt and meet people, meet your audience where they are and come up with new ideas. And I think, you know, the workroom is a perfect example of that. The idea of doing webinars, being able to not just have a, a static website, but also have have places where you can collaborate with other people or offer a venue for people to collaborate together, I think is the really important and something that I think we're proud of and sort of, sort of the next iteration of, of what the website is. The other thing I'd just add is that I think that all of these tools that we were using, Twitter, the way we were hosting our podcast, certainly the website, all of those give you a lot of pretty rich data as to how people are engaging in your content. And I think early on, we tried to meet and really dissect that to figure out sort of what was working, what wasn't, and not being wedded to anything. You know, all of these things were sort of, quote unquote, our babies, but we needed to be willing to sort of change things. And there were certain formats for the website, the way in which we sort of released new posts and then a lot to do with how we sort of did our podcast changed as we saw how people were consuming it. Right. So I'm actually curious. So Alex, for you especially, so you applied for Transplant Hepatology Fellowship after the Liberal Fellow Network was really a thing. Correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, the timing? Yep. Yes. How was that actually received as you were going through the process of applying? Uh, with massive fanfare. Um, <laughs> I think I think most of the places I interviewed had at least heard about it because we had tried to do a lot of outreach to sort of the program directors at the transplant hepatology and GI level to try to let fellows know about it as we were sort of launching initially. And I think people were pretty excited about it. I think that throughout hepatology, there's a sense that, and Adam, please cut in, but that Part of the reason why more people aren't going into hepatology is they're not exposed enough to it at sort of the formative moments, whether that be med school or residency, if you're not in a place like Mount Sinai where there's a primary liver service that you're sort of working on all the time. And so having something else that was highly engaging, that was sort of putting liver out there to people, I think was exciting to the, at least people that are interviewing for transplant hepatology positions about sort of the future of hepatology. Just shifting away from the Liver Fellow Network specifically and more to the podcast right now. So not to throw this out as the first question, but who's your favorite guest you've had on so far? Mm. And the answer is not all of them. (laughs) It's like you can't. It's like picking yeah, between, between your two yeah, yeah. exactly. Your favorite parent. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've found something to love about each and every one of our guests. That's true. Okay, oh, that, nice. I, I, that, was a, that was a very... Diplomatic. It, it shows you're ready to yeah. be an attending with that line, Thank you. Adam. Thank that, you. That, was, that was well done. You did not reject the consult. You accepted it and transitioned it. Embraced so nice. it. It's hard. It takes longer to fight it. So how... <laughs> So I'm sure CS and I can talk about this too, but I'm curious, how has the podcast evolved? How are you enjoying it? Kind of, what have you really liked about it? What have you found challenging about it? You know, Alex and I have learned a lot as the podcast has gone on. You know, we've been doing this for two years, which is crazy to think about. You know, I think when we first started it, we weren't really sure, you know, what it was going to be, but we didn't want to do a podcast that was going to be, you know, this is how you treat hepatic encephalopathy, because I think that's something that you can get somewhere else. We wanted to tackle kind of bigger issues. And I think the thing 
that I've been most proud of of it is that we've really featured a number of different hepatologists who've gone through a number of different pathways, who have a number of different interests. And so for us and our listeners who are trainees, you know, the hope is that they can identify with certain faculty that we're interviewing and maybe find something in their story or in what they're doing that they can identify with and see that you don't have to be, you know, some like R awarded, you know, researcher to have a place in this field. And so we've, I think the thing, you know, about our podcast is that we tackle bigger themes, but also try to have a variety of guests on so that our listeners who we hope are our fellows or, or residents can see something of themselves and the people that we're interviewing so that they have a way to connect to our field. And I think that's, that's the thing that I think is, is most important to me in terms of how we can conduct the podcast. And you, Alex, what's your proudest moment? I, I, I mean, not not to be simplistic, I think I'm most proud of the fact that it exists and we've been able to sort of sustain it for this amount of time and actually have a decent listenership, or at least more than I think we would have initially expected for you know two fellows talking about liver disease. I completely agree with Adam. I think that they're topics that are interesting to us. They're either recent papers or just people that have done interesting things are focused on parts of liver disease that really interest us and we think would interest a larger trainee population. And so getting to dive really deep with those people because anybody can read the paper that we're talking about. You know, we just did one with Dr. Ray Kim, who is sort of the lead author on MELD 3.0. And so anybody can read MELD 3.0, but one <laughs> Look getting... Look at Matt's face. <laughs> As an esophagologist, I just got around on sodium. So 3.0, <laughs> here we go. Well, well, it hasn't been adopted yet, right, but right. yeah, sodium was 2.0. So you're not, you're, you're not far behind. You're actually ahead <laughs> yeah. right now, Matt. <laughs> but, but, you know, getting to talk to the person who did the model and talking about how he sort of weighted the different things is a whole, whole different level of sort of understanding it. But more importantly, you're also talking to someone who's had a, pretty awesome career in hepatology and getting to sort of hear about his journey, which you otherwise wouldn't. I mean, I would never have been able to speak to him. Uh, and he was very generous with his time, which was nice. And then the other thing that we try to do is sort of humanize all our guests. So we have a, a lightning round at the end where we really ask them questions that have absolutely nothing to do with liver disease so that like Adam was saying, that you can sort of not only see a different career path, but you can say, oh, these are, you know, people that have lives outside of just being in the hospital or publishing a ton. And that that resonates, I think, with people as well. That's so funny. We just did that with John and Odomi, uh, the lightning round question, which uh, Matt shot. So shout out to our other, if you haven't heard it, go to the uh, Small Talks, Big Topics uh, podcast. I know, shameless promotion. But we did do that. That was really fun. Was that a reverse plug? Yeah, wow. We're cannibalizing the plugs. (laughs) Podcast, our other one. (laughs) Shout out to ourselves. (laughs) Our other episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so actually, I'm curious, though, what is in the lightning round? Like, what are the questions you ask them? Is it so what are you saying you is? haven't you listened to all right our now. episodes? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're yeah, happy to I'm ask on, you. Uh, I'm on Meld 2.0. It's <laughs> uh, a mix of pop culture, uh, like irreverent pop culture with some sort of liver adjacent type questions. You know, the, the one I think we're known for by our listeners is, you know, what's your favorite liver cell, which... 
I think is is less interesting for what the answer is than how the explanation goes, which is really the reason why we, we keep asking it. Otherwise, we would have retired it. <laughs> Most recent colonoscopy is a classic. Whether received um, or, or, or performing. <laughs> we often ask about sort of last TV show or movie or book they've read, that kind of thing. And then uh, our favorite question is always when is which is not very helpful for us as, as early people, so you don't need to ask us, but uh, when has luck played a role in their career development? Oh, that's fantastic. I think that's kind of great. I actually was at a conference last two weeks ago or something like that where the argument was luck has never played a role in anyone's career ever <laughs> because they have positioned themselves to mm. be there and taken advantage of something that was there. I don't know if I agree with the point, but I'm curious how that question is answered by everyone or if you got a similar response. People, for the most part, feel that there was either a break or, a, you know, a timing that was fortunate for them or a mentor that came along at the right time with the right project or with the right advice that sort of helped them along their way. So I, I agree. It doesn't necessarily need to be luck, but sort of something that was formative that wasn't necessarily uh, intrinsic to the person. So... As we kind of wind down our conversation together, I would turn that question to you guys, right? So so actually, this is a two-parter. One is I'm curious what got you guys into liver, right? So like what actually inspired you? And if the answer is nine center, I'm we're shutting this down. The Sinai floor for all for all this. Yeah, right. A lot of insights. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of insights to Sinai at this point. Uh, and number two, I'm really curious what you guys, as you guys step into your attending careers, and you're both really doing that now, what would you turn around to the med students and the trainees that are listening here, right? We, similar to what you're saying, we, we also have a younger audience or younger and career audience. So what would you tell them to help them find out not just if the liver is right for them, but what is right for them? How did you find what's right for you? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I got interested. I, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a transplant hepatologist as a med student. Like, wow, he's he's one of those guys. A pretty yeah. nine center, and I wasn't excited <laughs> for med school, so we're going all the way back. So don't don't worry, it's it was a nine center. Um, I rotated as a third year medical student on the transplant service, and I for some reason, I, and this has been a theme throughout my my training, it just felt like the hepatologists were the best teachers. And you know, perhaps I'm a little biased, but I felt that. And I joked on Twitter with uh, Steve Heron, who's a hepatologist at Jefferson, where I went to medical school, that there's like, you know, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. There's like three or four degrees of Steve Heron. I feel like he has sort of inspired like a, a legion of transplant hepatologists. And a lot of that is because of the time he invested to teach us as students. And so I think I became a transplant hepatologist because he spent time with us and taught us and really sort of inspired us with his love of liver disease. And it doesn't hurt when, you know, you're on service and you see someone gets transplanted, you know, go from basically the edge of death to having life again. And the impact that has on the patient, the family, but also you as someone who's been taking care of this person. And so I think it's a combination of seeing the good side of what liver can be in terms of what we can offer people who are so sick. And then also having the investment by someone in you as a student. And I think, you know, the advice to answer your second question, the advice I would give students or trainees in terms of, you know, how to decide, I think, you know, for me, it was easy because the hepatologists were the ones who I felt like took an interest in, in my career and in my learning. And, Thus, I was most interested in that topic because I felt like I had a connection to it. I think 
you really have to to find a connection with with the specialty or, or whatever you're looking at. And for me, it was the time put in to me. And that's something I won't forget as I transition into faculty is that a lot of times we don't have time to spend time with the medical students or the residents and, and teach them something. But, you know, that had such a profound effect on me. And so like, to turn around and be able to do that for someone else, I think is really important and something that, you know, is always in the back of my mind. Awesome. Alex, you? Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Adam said, especially with the advice. So I'll try to go somewhere different than that instead of just restating what he said. In terms of why liver, um, I did not know in med school. I'm definitely someone that is very experiential when it comes to decisions. And so I felt fortunate at Sinai as a resident that you really got in-depth exposure to a variety of different fields, whether it be the onc inpatient service or the cardiology inpatient service, and then the dedicated liver inpatient service. And the patients on the liver service were really the ones that resonated most with me. I liked that there was sort of a comprehensive approach to them, that physical exam still mattered with them, but that you really had to know your stuff and know pretty much all of physiology to give them a chance at sort of succeeding. And I also liked that, and this is something that a lot of people don't like about liver, but a lot of them were the sickest people in the hospital. And so you really needed to work in a collaborative way with you know, the nurses as well as a lot of different specialties to try to get good outcomes. What I've learned more during fellowship and something that really resonates with me that sort of confirmed for me that liver was what I wanted to do um, was both what the hepatologists were like. I really find them to be sort of my people. I find them to be great teachers, as Adam said, but also people that are quite approachable and really excited and passionate about the liver, which is nice. And I also like that the relationships with the patients are very longitudinal. I think in a lot of specialties, you're not necessarily seeing the patients that long. You're being consulted for something. You treat that or you don't treat that. And then you're never seeing them again, whereas the liver patients that you're seeing are really with you for as long as your career is or as long as their life is. And that's true for both transplanted patients as well as just people with advanced liver disease. And so that really appealed to me. And then the other part was just that I myself very much am interested in medical education, not surprisingly given this conversation, and saw that the transplant hepatologists and the advanced hepatologists at each stage of my training were people that were naturally built into the educational experience, that like the career naturally lent itself to sort of a mixture of inpatient and outpatient that I could really picture as being quite fulfilling for me. And so that's how I sort of ended up with liver disease. In terms of advice, I will do something very different than Adam because I agree in terms of picking a career, experience is the best way to do it, like really trying to get in. The only thing I'd add is try to, whether it be via electives or just an afternoon that you have when you're an outpatient or something, go to the outpatient clinic of whatever specialties you're thinking about because inpatient is almost none of it. Um, <laughs> and so it is good to see whether or not that is actually interesting and exciting to you. And then I think that a lot of people talk about mentorship and sort of finding mentors, uh, which is easier said than done. There could be entire other episodes. You guys have had other episodes that are quite helpful on mentorship. But I think in addition to finding mentors that are able to fulfill specific sort of goals or roles for you. So I need an abstract so then I can apply to X next stage of my career. This mentor is going to help me with sort of a digestible project for that. Or I'm interested in education. Let's come up with a curriculum. It's also worth trying to find coaches that are not necessarily there to 
do a specific task with you, but really just be there to sort of help you on your way. And I think mentorship and coaching often get conflated, but I think it's quite valuable to have a separate person that is there to really bounce ideas off of, whether they be academic or personal, and is just there to sort of try to help advocate for you and help you sort of find your way. Very good advice indeed. Very true. Yeah. We should have a coaching episode. We have not had one. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it might be coming. Oh, wow. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Spoiler. not with Adam. Coming up. Yeah. <laughs> coming up next episode. Um, I was going to try to make a reference to who was coach on television. Was it Craig T. Nelson that was coach? Uh, maybe. Oh, uh, I, I only know Coach Taylor. But uh, this, is pre, this is pre-Friday Night Lights. <laughs> this is like pre-Friday Night of a certain era, I feel like. So uh, maybe last question before we ask for your handle and, and the last plug for the liver fellow network and the podcast, what is your favorite liver cell? Mm. You knew it was coming. Yeah, I know. It's the hepatocyte. It just does sure. so many things. I mean, anyone who gives a different answer, we, Alex and I just kind of look at each other and we're like, <sighs> yeah. I mean, but then there's some people who can't give an answer. And then right. we really judge those people. But, yeah, but, but, so, White noise, yeah. Ooh, hoop for cells, I forgot. Is that yeah, right? So, is so, that in the as, as, a, so. as a Sinai person, we're supposed to say stellate cells, I believe. Right. Um, so <laughs> Dr. Friedman, Friedman uh, found it. <laughs> but, but I agree with the hepatocyte. I mean, the last pitch for liver is that it's the one organ other than the brain that there's no replacement for as of yet. And that's because the hepatocyte is so smart that we have not been able to create something that can do everything a hepatocyte can do. And so the hepatocyte is obviously the best cell, perhaps in the body, not just the liver. Wow. That's the hill you want to die on? No. (laughs) (laughs) I can name a number. (laughs) I'll take... uh, the entire heart and the brain over the liver, but um, uh, but I do love a hepatocyte. Very nice. Well, to close, how can people reach you? Twitter, email, or otherwise? Uh, so you can get us on Twitter. I am at Adam underscore C underscore Winters. We have it's super, super easy. easy. Yeah, if you, if you have, to have heavy on the shift key. Yeah, yeah. Were there so many other Adam C. Winters <laughs> on Twitter before you? Listen, I've tried to change it back a number of times. Okay, this is the only way I can get. <laughs> and uh, not to brag, but mine is just at Alex S. Vogel. S is in Simon, which is my middle name. Yes. Not Sinai. Also sexy. Not Sinai. Although after next year, they may have changed my name. And then uh, you should also definitely follow for much more stuff at Liverfellow that gives all the content, whether it's related to our podcast or everything that's being produced on the Liverfellow network. Right. If you follow me, it's just a lot of complaints about the four train. So you should follow at Liverfellow. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Alex and Adam. Thank you. Thanks so much. You guys, this is really quite impressive. So congratulations to the two of you as well as uh, your three colleagues that uh, really launched this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. This, this was an honor to be on the other side of the mic. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD podcast production done by resonant recordings don't forget to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast thanks for listening and have a good one